the human species is a war-making species. Other species fight as well, but we seem to fight for what we take to be higher political purposes and in pursuit of higher values, or per perhaps merely in pursuit of more territory than the ants can aspire to. At any rate, we are talking about great battles in human history. Three military historians join me tonight. John Lynn is professor of history at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Paul Kern is professor of history at Indiana University Northwest. And uh, Colonel John Votaw, who's an old friend, is the executive director of the Cantini First Division Foundation uh, and runs the Cantini Military Museum out in Wheaton, and he is also adjunct associate professor of history at Dominican University. Gentlemen, uh, Barbara Tuckman, who wrote a very interesting book about World War I, didn't she, says, uh, dead battles like dead generals hold the military mind in their dead grip. What did she mean by that? John well, I mean, we tend to sort of centralize our ideas about war in the actual battles that were fought. Um, that's dramatic. Um, it gives us something that we can hold on to, although sometimes I feel that, that we lose so much of the preparation and organization for war in the process of centering on particular battles. I tend to be a believer more in decisive military institutions than in decisive battles. How do you mean that? You mean it isn't battles that win wars, it's well, preparation that wins wars? Well, or you know, when you talk about a decisive battle, which I think we're going to be doing quite a bit of mm -hmm. tonight, you have to ask what's decided. Uh, if, if, for example, you're looking at the Battle of Omdurman, uh, 1898, in which the Mahdi brings thousands of spear-armed uh, natives against in General, Sudan. Against General Gordon, against, isn't that what uh, it is? No, it's uh, a Kitchener. And he's got machine guns, and there's gunboats in the Nile, and it's a slaughter. Is the battle the decisive thing, or the fact that you've got, you know, the Iron Age versus, you know, the Industrial Age warfare brought together for, for bizarre circumstances? Well, that just points to the fact that there's a reason why that particular battle was won by that particular side. Ab absolutely. Well, the but culminating point, yeah. of course, is Chinese Gordon at uh, Khartoum. Yeah. yeah. But are, th are there some battles in which it can be said they were won essentially because of the brilliance of the commanding general? I think so. Um, if you take the Battle of Marathon, which is kind of an uh, archetype of the great battle, mm -hmm. uh, here uh, you had a very crucial decision that had to be made by the Athenians uh, when the uh, Persians landed there at Marathon. Uh, the Persian army was much larger, about twice as large as the Athenian army, and uh, Athens was a new democracy at this time, and so the dates they, are. Uh, this is 490. 490 this is in, BC. In 490 BC, and so Athens is a new uh, democracy, and uh, so they don't have one general; they have ten, uh, and they're all elected, and they are split five to five on whether to um, engage the Persian force on the plain of Marathon. And the decisive um, vote is cast by uh, an older official uh, called the Polemarch, who was Callimachus, and uh, he had been persuaded by one of the ten generals, um, uh, Miltiades, uh, to uh, engage the Persians on the plain of Marathon. And uh, Miltiades uh, had a strategy uh, to defeat the uh, Persians there, and that turned out to be absolutely the right decision. Uh, Miltiades' uh, tactics uh, worked, 
Uh, and in that case, I would say that uh, a uh, single general, namely Miltiades, mm -hmm. had a decisive effect not only on winning the battle, but persuading the Athenians to fight it in the first place. And I must tell you uh, that all people named Milton have a special reverence for Miltiades. <laughs> they take special pride in him. Could I draw us back to Barbara Tuckman? Uh, yes, please. I, I think what she may have been getting at, coming from a missionary family in China during uh, arduous times, uh, uh, she may have been talking about what Clausewitz uh, understood about battle, and that's violence is at its center. It's essentially mm -hmm. a colossally destructive act, um, uh, as many or more negative aspects to it than perhaps positive aspects. And the, the notion of looking for uh, virtue in, in the midst of catastrophe might have been uh, what she was trying to get at. But you can start to look for historical significance. If you go back to Marathon, uh, it can certainly be argued, I, I would think, as it can also for Salamis, the great naval victory of mm -hmm. the Greeks against the invading uh, Persians, that if uh, the Athenians had lost, uh, we would be, as somebody pointed out uh, on a recent program we did about, in fact, naval warfare, we would be sitting here talking Farsi or something like it, and we would be Zoroastrians rather than Jews yeah. and Christians. I, I, I certainly would argue that, that Salamis and Plataea, if you wanted to throw the land version of that, that you know, are probably the most important battles ever fought in Western civilization because they define Western civilization. So much of what we think of as, as the greatness of Greece is, is the 5th century explosion mm -hmm. of sculpture, architecture of the Parthenon, Phidias, and of course, you know, later in the century, Socrates, yeah. uh, that we wouldn't have had but without that, that, without the, the, the enthusiasm and confidence that came out of the, the defending Greece from the Persian army. Well, go, go forward 50 or 75 years. Another big war in Greece mm. between two Greek yeah. states and the various states aligned with them. The Peloponnesian, Peloponnesian war, war between Athens and Sparta. Uh, are there great battles that turned that in, ultimately in the direction of the victors? Well, usually the um, failed siege of Syracuse mm -hmm. and the Sicilian expedition mm -hmm. uh, when uh, Athens uh, attempted to conquer um, Sicily is counted as the turning point, although the war did uh, go on for a, a few more years. Uh, but um, there you have an example of perhaps the, the weakness of the Athenian military system. Uh, they uh, departed uh, with three generals uh, who were not agreed on what the objective of the mission were, uh, they had the uh, Alcibiades, uh, the controversial, young, um, um, uh, enthusiastic uh, supporter of the expedition. Uh, you had Nicias, uh, the old, uh, somewhat tired uh, uh, opponent of the expedition. But he had a reputation for being lucky, and so they sent him anyway. Uh, and then you had Lamachus, who was... Uh, uh, blustery, competent, uh, but very unpolitical. There was somebody uh, who was very incompetent. Uh, the, the thing ends in a terrible rout and in a terrible slaughter. It's well described by Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War. It's the Greeks down essentially uh, trying to come in on boats, and they are slaughtered uh, by uh, those who stand on the cliffs above. Isn't that right? I that, this uh, is not my number one yeah, battle. This is, um, uh, <laughs> really, it was an uh, example of the shortcoming of Greek uh, siege uh, uh, tactics. Uh, the Greeks were, were not good at siege warfare. 
so this was a very difficult task. And uh, Nicias, who um, became the commander after the sole commander after Lamachus had been killed uh, and Alcibiades had fled because he had um, been uh, indicted in Athens for sacrilege, uh, Nicias attempted to uh, circumvallate uh, uh, Syracuse, and this was a very difficult task. Um, logistically, the support was not there. Uh, the uh, army was um, uh, got bogged down. Uh, there was plague, uh, and uh, when they lost a decisive naval engagement in the Great Harbor at Syracuse, uh, this really doomed the army. Yeah. And um, uh, so uh, I think that the scene that you are thinking about is when the army tried to evacuate, and Thucydides describes this very vividly, uh, they are hungry, uh, they uh, are dying of thirst, and they come to this very small river as they're trying to evacuate, and they just totally lose discipline and uh, swarm down to the river to drink the water and the Syracusans slaughter them yeah. there. Yeah, that's yeah. the scene. We're going to jump, uh, not necessarily proceed chronologically, but uh, wander hither and yon across the broad <laughs> chronology of essentially Western history, though undoubtedly there are great battles fought in Asian civilization, which we will not get around to. We maneuver, to we don't wander. <laughs> well, at any rate, I'm, I'm going to jump forward to World War I, sure. uh, about which John Votaw knows a great deal, uh, because he is, among other things, the director of uh, the Cantini First Division Foundation. And Cantini is a battle, not necessarily the greatest battle in World no, War I, I, but an important one. I describe it as a regimental-sized battle conducted by a division. Mm -hmm. uh, because there was a very important purpose in the Americans showing well uh, in that initial battle of the AEF. And also it was a battle in which a very prominent participant was the man who built the building in which we are now sitting. Uh, yes, Colonel Robert McCormick was an artilleryman, uh, commanded an artillery ba battalion during that fight. Um, he was a citizen soldier, had begun in the National Guard, and uh, had, uh, through various uh, designs and maneuvers, uh, found his way first to Pershing's staff and then ultimately down to the 1st Division. So where was Cantini and what was that issue there? Uh, 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 Cantini is a village uh, in Picardy, about 50 miles north of Paris. Uh, this was the site of one of the March uh, uh, offensives, breakthroughs by the German army, uh, and uh, coming in, into that sector and, and threatening the line. Uh, the Americans who had been arguing uh, to hold themselves out for a separate sector uh, in, in, under their own commanders. Uh, Pershing relents to Foch's appeal and uh, releases the 1st Division and others. Uh, this is about uh, late or mid-1917? Uh, this would have been uh, late March, early April of 1918. 18 already, yeah. And the battle at Cantini is actually in uh, the end of May 1918, mm -hmm. from uh, the 28th to the 31st. The I guess the American forces really don't get fully committed and fully involved in uh, in actual battle until 1918, did they? Oh, that's quite true. They arrived, of course, in June of 1917, yeah. and the, 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 the difficulty is that they have not trained adequately. I mean, the mobilization it happened so quickly, so abruptly. So we had a short war. We, we just didn't we, have one. We year. had about a 14-month uh, battle experience, and a lot of that <coughs> was uh, was training on, on site. Pershing had some funny ideas on how to train American troops. I mean, yeah. he thought, he thought uh, marching and, and, and rif mm -hmm. rifle yeah. marksmanship would win the war sort of thing. Yeah. Well, actually, he wasn't too far wrong with, with rifle marksmanship, but it was trying to capture that uh, that technical expertise within a system that he called open mm -hmm. warfare. Yeah. It's interesting to compare that 
to another battle based upon a German breakthrough, in fact, the last gasp of the German army in the West, the Battle of the Bulge. Battle of the Bulge, yeah. Uh, a battle that caught us absolute flat-footed. Uh, to me, the amazing thing is, considering the tremendous intelligence advantages we had in World War II, we just didn't see that coming. Set, set the scene, John. It's the... It's in the forest of... It's in, in, the, uh, it's in the Ardennes. The Ardennes. It's in the Ardennes yeah. campaign where, in fact, the Germans had been so successful defeating the French in 1940. We'd driven very close... Well, we were in Lorraine. Uh, Patton's army was in Lorraine around Metz. Uh, and it's somewhat stalled there. It was just getting going again when this happened. Uh, we had no conception that they'd be able to mount that kind of, of an offensive. There had been word here and there. Patton actually thought that something would happen up there. Uh, but n nobody was prepared, and then it, it broke through. I mean, it made no sense. The weather was bad. Yeah, the weather was awful. What month is it? December? Uh, or? We're in December, January, yeah. 44, 45. Yeah, yeah. And, and for the, the men who fought that, they, they remember that as the, the, the worst experience of all of them. Of course, in 1940, that's exactly where the Germans came exactly, through. The, exactly. The and very, but this very time they rolled through with considerable panzer power, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, this is pretty much the last throw of the dice. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. they were going to have an offensive uh, at that point in the war, it had to be in the uh, more compressed space in the West. They were no longer able to mount counter offensives on the Eastern Front. The Did idea, they, though, is was not a bad idea you know, to strike at the boundary between the Americans and yeah. the, and the uh, British. Yeah, except you know, here, here, here is so often when you look at at battles, battles don't exist, you know, kind of in an independent flux. I mean, there there should be part of an operational scheme, which is then part of a strategic scheme. And so often with the Germans, they're very good at, at, at the tactical. They're very good at the, the kind of running a campaign. And strategically, they're a basket case. No sense of what this is finally going to accomplish. Well, and, and, and no sense of, 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 where they're, uh, of what kind of, of opposition they can bite off, chew, and deal with. This also shows up at the at the higher level, their inability to coordinate their activities with the Japanese, although uh, mm -hmm. there, there there are attempts. They don't trust each other. It occurs to me if you look at something like World War One and certainly World War Two, the war is continuous. You can highlight certain points of intense conflict and call them battles, but something's always going on. Armies are always moving towards each other. If you think back to say medieval war, as for example represented by Shakespeare, mm -hmm. I think of the play. Henry V. Mm -hmm. They seem to be engagements where the two sides have agreed, uh, we'll meet you on such and such a field, and our two armies will go at each other, and we'll see who takes Although the day. Although within the context of longer wars. Uh, Those wars do go on, but right. they are, but, well, I, I'm I just guessing. I think what you're I'm describing sounds more like uh, hoplite warfare yes, more like uh, in Greece, ancient uh, Explain Greece. Explain what that means. Uh, the hoplites were farmer soldiers. They mm -hmm. were farmers first, uh, soldiers second. Uh, and uh, they were heavily armored infantry, um, and their main task was to defend their farmland. Uh, and um, the wars were border wars over farmland, and two uh, heavy infantry uh, units called uh, phalanxes would uh, march against each other. They'd find the <laughs> flattest uh, place they could, uh, and they would smash together and uh, whoever won that pushing match and won the field uh, won the war. Uh, and uh, in Herodotus, the 
Persian general Mardonius is explaining this type of warfare to yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, Persian emperor Darius and saying that uh, the Greeks are the stupidest people in the world uh, because they fight their battles this way. Although they're not the only ones to do that. I, but Chinese warfare uh, in the period before the warring states, warring states about in the, uh, starts in the, in the 5th century, but they actually did the same sort of thing in terms of uh, two armies in the field kind of agreeing where and on what day, and then they would fight a, a fairly savage battle, but, you know, it was by agreement. Bat battles are, are often ritualized, I and think. And citizen soldiers, uh, the idea is an enduring one. I mean, it's, yeah. it's mm -hmm. part of our uh, heritage even today. One of the advantages of the hoplite uh, battles were that they were cheap. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, it, the war, it ended the war quickly. It made the war very short. Uh, the soldiers were citizen soldiers. They weren't paid. They provided their own armor. Uh, it didn't require... Uh, maintaining permanent military forces, guarding passes, building fortifications, and so it fit into a society of small farmers very but look well. But look at the citizen-soldier war uh, fought much more recently between two neighboring uh, Middle Eastern states, Iran and Iraq. Uh, that war went on for some eight or more years, and thousands were slain, essentially untrained kids, particularly mm -hmm. among mm -hmm. on the Iranian side, were sort of marched in to be devastated with the understanding that they would be. It had some of the aspects of tribal warfare, however, uh, uh, in, in terms of the two major religious groups at each other's throat, in addition to being uh, states in, in proximity. I mean, Well, it was, they were both Muslim. It was Shiite uh, versus Sunni, perhaps, but uh, even there that isn't quite uh, but clear. But with, with citizens regard to your... in arms, uh, oftentimes you get a much more violent, a much bloodier uh, conflict. Uh, why? Um, I, I think simply one, uh, the, the, the training level is probably not at the same uh, degree that you would have in a fully professional force. In other words, soldiers who were soldiers first. and uh, So with mere citizen soldiers and peasant uh, armies, the generals may view them essentially as cannon fodder. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that's so much, but uh, ide ideology sometimes will reign uh, more strongly mm -hmm. in that kind Vic of conflict. Victor Hansen's argument is that citizen armies fight best with a sense of moral out outrage. And in a sense of moral outrage, they lose the sense of limitation of what you should do to your foe. Mm -hmm. It's not the 18th century army in which the aristocratic officers on both sides share so much in common they could be quite civil to each other uh, on days they weren't fighting battle and then go off and, 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 and fight uh, effectively. Uh, so the, the notion of moral outrage as fueling a war can explain some of that, at least uh, that's, that's one reasonable argument. Who is the greatest military figure in Western history after, say, 1700? Oh, I would have to say Napoleon. I, I thought you would. That's yeah. why I <laughs> posed that question. I don't like Napoleon. but Because yeah. when we return, yeah. some commercials yeah. are coming, okay. I think we ought to focus on uh, Napoleonic warfare and some of the great battles of that era. We return directly to John Lynn, who is, among other things, a Napoleonic specialist, to Paul Kern and to John Votaw after these words. We are refighting some of the great battles of Western history. Uh, ranging back and forth across some uh, uh, 3,000 years, at least, I would say. Uh, our guests are Paul Kern, John Lynn, and John Votaw. Paul Kern is professor of history at Indiana University, Northwest. He's the author of a book published uh, in 1999, which I hold in my hand, very handsome. I haven't yet read it, but I think I will be doing so, titled Ancient Siege Warfare. That is published by University of Indiana Press. 
uh, John Lynn, who is an old friend, is professor of history at the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign, and his newest book is titled uh, Wars of Louis XIV, 1667 to 1714. That's just been published by Longman Limited. And John Votaw, the executive director of the Cantini First Division Foundation and of the Cantini and the museum, the military museum at Cantini in Wheaton, Illinois, is also adjunct associate professor of history at Dominican University in River Forest, Illinois. And much and, too busy to write books. Well, but I, <laughs> I was about to say, though, John, I hold in my hand uh, two volumes that you presented me with tonight. I, I am the general editor of a series of uh, uh, both monographs and conference proceedings. And one of them is titled Gulf War Commanders Discuss Desert Storms. So you, you had a conference at Cantina. That's correct, about which two they years did ago. Just that. Uh, and another is titled Comes a Thaw, The Questions of Cold War History. That sounds fascinating to me. Ooh. I shall be reading it, I am sure. But we're about to look at uh, Boney. Boney. What about him? Well, I'm going to say some nice things about him as an operational tactical commander, but before I do, I have to say that he ruined my revolution, so I'll never forgive him for it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, while a splendid commander, was such a manipulator, and I think uh, 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 somebody who... who who used but disregarded the lives of his own soldiers, and I find it hard to respect that. He once said to Metternich, a man like me doesn't have to worry about the loss of a million men. That is not my kind of general. Uh, but at any rate, when it, when it came to running campaign or came to fighting a battle, he was as good as they got. Uh, he was. We generally think of him as the great military genius of early modern history. And he, abs he absolutely is. I mean, was he, what, what defines his genius-like quality? Well, I think he appreciated movement and mass at a time when other generals didn't have uh, a tag on that. He was able to do this because he had inherited the finest military instrument in Europe. Uh, but it's 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 beyond that. In, in 18, uh, excuse me, uh, in 1796, he's given the worst army the French have a, a, a ragtag affair hanging around the Maritime Alps in Genoa. He's not supposed to do much with it, and he takes over entire northern Italy and drives the Austrians out of the war. Uh, it may be his most splendid campaign because his resources were the most limited. And it's really his time. first campaign. It's his mean. first great campaign, and it is absolutely a, a work of genius. And, and I think also the, just the notion of genius, intuition, and luck. Yeah, uh, he's, an, luck. he's an incredibly absolutely. lucky person. Yeah, yes. There are a number of places in his career that he could have and probably should have been shot dead. And it just didn't happen. And early in his career, there's things that should have led to the end of his career, and somehow he manages uh, to get through it. Uh, the whole Egyptian campaign, to me, first of all, uh, that it, it kind of contradicts his genius because it strikes me as a really dumb campaign to begin with. Yeah, the with. question is, what were they doing down there? Well, he was he thought he had this notion that you couldn't attack England by crossing the Channel. The way you do it is, as it were, undermine their imperial position in India by working through Egypt, which to me is crazy. It's a stretch. And and, and it does you know, occur to you that you would think that because you're going to have to do it across the Mediterranean, a successful navy would be a nice thing to have. And, of course, he loses his ships right after he arrives because Nelson comes in and wipes him out. And you wonder. And yet, you know, he, he, he grabs the glory, and then he gets on a frigate, goes back to France, and while the French still think this is a great success, takes over the there, government. There is one other aspect, and that's the ability to build not only an army, while you're fighting, but also to bring loyal followers 
uh, around you in the building of the Marshallite is. There are some yeah. interesting side effects always of, uh, of wars, uh, some uh, incidental payoffs. For example, one could make the argue if Napoleon had not gone into Egypt, we would not know how to read yeah, the Egyptian hieroglyphs yeah. and we wouldn't know the history yeah. of Egypt uh, because it was Champollion. They found the Rosetta Stone and Champollion came along and yeah. uh, translated it and discovered how to read uh, ancient Egyptian. And of course many of the stories of World War II are in that same vein, uh, that the discoveries that are made in passing uh, have long-reaching long consequences. As for example? Well, penicillin, uh, you know. Right. On the scientific yes. side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sir Alexander Fleming. Radar. Yeah. Yeah. Radar, the development of radar. Transistor. Which came but out back to Napoleon. Yeah. Uh, his history, how many years is it that he's raging across Europe winning battle after battle? His first, his first great campaign is 1796, and his last uh, great campaign is 1815. Mm. And it, 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 one of the fascinating things about him, although he has his ups and downs, you know, one of the great debates is, what is his greatest campaign, 1796, is it, is it 1805 to 1807, or is it 1814? And that's something for people to pick up, you know, on, on the beginning, middle, and end of your career. Who is he fighting against? Well, virtually what, everyone. W yes, but the, the key thing is when he was doing well, he was fighting against enemies one at a time. Mm -hmm. And when he is defeated, he's fighting against the entire They've all got together. family of nations. And that is where he, he simply came up short. He was a general who could win a campaign and a battle, but he had no sense of, at the end of the war, what would the world look like? One of his, uh, uh, of course, colonels, a Swiss by the name of uh, uh, Jomini, uh, of course, developed a sort of a mechanical mm -hmm. and mathematical explanation uh, for some of these successes, things like operating from interior lines. And that's where you are able to do what John was just describing. Uh, you can fight an enemy one at a time by a superior central position. And you just march and meet them with superior mm -hmm. force at any given point. Yeah. There's something else there that interests a, a psychologist, which is, uh -huh. after all, my limited discipline. Um, and that is, uh, Napoleon can't be the first, but he is surely one of the great charismatic oh, military figures. Absolutely. Part of his success, apart from his brilliance in how to run battles, is his ability to rally millions of men around him and, uh, in essence, persuade them that they, yeah. uh, there's no better fate that they could achieve than to die he, in his service. He's a master How of, does he do of, that? Of, of psychology with troops. He remembers people's names. Ah. He will remember acts that they, that they commit. He associates himself personally with them in the field in such a way that they have the feeling that they have this direct relationship with the general. Walks along and says, how's that little boy, says to a grenadier, how's that little boy of yours? He must be almost four years old yeah, by now. Yeah. That sort of thing? Yes. And but he's personally brave, you see. And, and stands there in the middle of battle. He's, he's in the thick of things. Mm -hmm. Early on yeah. he is. Later on he's leading from the rear, but, but early, early on. Yeah, yeah, but early, early on. Remember, he the song, he has to remember the song, The Two Grenadiers? Returning from Russia, two grenadiers were traveling, something or other, together. And then they get the bad news. The, the, the main refrain of the song, the emperor, the emperor is taken. Meaning the emperor has yeah. been captured, which wasn't, in fact, the case. That wasn't the case. Yeah. The only person who seems to compare with Napoleon is Alexander the Great, ah, yes. someone that Napoleon admired very mm -hmm. much. And they're two very similar types. Uh, like Napoleon, Alexander the Great inherited a... Uh, a great army that his father had created. Uh, I uh, share John Lynn's dislike of Napoleon with my dislike of um, 
uh, Alexander. I don't think that he had a, a clear strategic sense of uh, what uh, he was seeking uh, and was one of these people who just would never stop and, and tell. Uh, a key to what he was seeking is given in that story, whether we will never know whether it's a true story or uh, apocryphal, that um, uh, he's found weeping after one of his father's great victories, Philip of, of, of Marathon, because, and when asked why he's weeping, he says, because there's nothing left to conquer. Uh, but once he <laughs> he found a lot more to he found a lot more. well no, essentially no. he rolls east he also rolls oh, India so yeah. he has great yeah. admirers Arthur Farrell in his book uh, the origin of war uh, concludes uh, by arguing mm -hmm. and I want your reaction yeah. to this John uh, that uh, a if Alexander had been uh, in command of the French army at Waterloo uh, the French would have won and b if he had been in command of his own Macedonian army uh, against Wellington, that they would have been competitive, setting aside, he says, the possible psychological effect of exploding gunpowder, that if you, if you set that aside, <laughs> a major uh, he, argues, a big he argues that but you do Alexander's there. army uh, would have been competitive. And his point really is that he doesn't think that military technology and organization yeah. and had developed that much from the time of Alexander to the Well, I, I would think gunpowder does make a uh, significant he, difference, yeah, surely. Here's where I think gunpowder really does make a difference, and that is the, the, the dealing of death from afar, the uh -huh. having to deal with tremendous casualties when you simply can't do anything about it, and, and therefore requiring you to, as it were, guts out that long approach to the point where you can actually confront the enemy. Greek warfare uh, of both the polis and later on in the Macedonian variant, uh, once you, you, you do decide to close with the enemy, it's a pretty quick affair. We're getting to a critically important notion, and that is uh, moving from personal combat to technological war. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do we have any way of, do the military historians have any way of assessing what the level of mortality was in ancient war as compared to war after gunpowder war of the 19th century or contemporary war i mean how many men really died when uh, at marathon uh how many men died at waterloo is there in proportion to total numbers i engaged, think we know more about difference? waterloo than we perhaps know about uh, according to herodotus uh, 192 Greeks died at Marathon mm -hmm. out of an army of about 10,000. and uh, That's a low rate. Uh, so that's a low rate, uh, but uh, 6,400 Persians were killed mm -hmm. uh, out of perhaps an uh, army of 20,000, and that's a very high rate. I think ancient uh, battles were characterized by a rather low casualty on the winning side, uh, but very high on the losing now, side. By way of comparison, at Omaha Beach, uh, where the Fifth Corps assaulted, uh, with the uh, the First Division reinforced heavily from uh, a Second Division and other units, per brought perhaps 34,000 men ashore that first day. Uh, Fifth Corps had about 3,000 casualties on that first day, but you see a casualty is not killed. There's a common yeah. error made in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, the the death rate was probably about 10%, about 300. At Omaha Beach? At Omaha Beach. Only 10%. And the rest were wa uh, wounded, missing, yeah. captured, and so forth. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, in, in modern uh, battles, and I, I don't mean 20th right. century, I mean, you know, if you, if you are, are suffering 25 to 30% casualty, and that includes uh, missing and wounded as well as killed, you pretty well 
you lose the cohesion of the army, and you're you're, go, you're not going to be able to carry. And we have on those examples day. like the first Minnesota that loses 80 percent yeah. at, at Gettysburg. Uh, so you have astonishing figures, but a lot of those regiments in the Civil War by 1863-64 are at very low strength. Before we before we leave Napoleon, let oh, us yes. come to his termination. Uh, namely the Battle of Waterloo. To be sure, he's defeated earlier, and he's sent off to Elba, where right. he says in palindromic form, Abel was I, I ere I saw Elba. Yeah. Strangely, he says it in English, because it, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be a palindrome. Uh, wouldn't read the Very same backwards man, as, as forwards. Yes, with an Italian accent, right. I tell you. Yeah. But, yes, his Corsican yeah, accent. Yeah. But, um, uh, well, uh, Wellington says of Waterloo, where Napoleon was finally defeated, yes. uh, Wellington says, of that battle, it was a damn close run thing, thing yeah. meaning we could have lost. Yes. Is that true? Well, yes, yes, he could have. Uh, uh, but, but uh, talking about Waterloo is is sort of a metaphor for talking about lots of battles. It's a battle that went a certain way, but even if it had gone the other way, the war wouldn't have changed much. At Waterloo, the the Allies are so convinced that you cannot deal with Napoleon that r at the moment when he lands, they begin to form a coalition, which would... Which He's escaped from the island of Elba. He lands in the south of France. Right. He musters a new army. He musters a new army. Still with that great charismatic he is quality. A great charisma, charisma, but an army at only about one-third as, as it had been in, yeah. in the normal imperial times. He didn't have the time to create a bigger one. And it was going to have to deal not only with the British and not only with the, their minor allies and not only with the Prussians, who were all at Waterloo, but the great to two great steamrollers of Europe, which were Austria and Russia, and they were just getting mobilized. They, they would have flattened him sooner or later. Even if he had won at Waterloo. Even if he had won. However, all of that being said, you know, in a sense, Napoleon should have won at Waterloo. Um, wh wh what he had done in his other campaigns is convince his enemies they must fight united. And even though he drove the Prussians and the, and the British in opposite directions, and it looked like he had separated them, the, the Prussians, despite the fact that they had been badly, badly uh, beaten up at Ligny, Luker comes back. Yeah, they, they make up their mind that, above all else, they will reunite to fight Napoleon. And Blucher comes in on the, on the French right during the battle and makes it impossible. In fact, Napoleon, during the crucial attacks, is actually out leading the French more on, on his own right against the Prussians than he is worried uh, about the English, who he leaves one of his less able uh, marshals by the name of Ney to lead the attacks. And things go to hell in a handbasket. How bloody was Waterloo in terms of oh, total losses? I don't, have I those don't know the numbers, yeah. but, uh, uh, but uh, cavalry against infantry squares and uh, with, with artillery blazing away. Yeah. I can remember John Keegan's uh, description of the battlefield uh, after the battle in, the, in his book, The Face of Battle, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the number either, but it's a very vivid description of how many there were strewn uh, over the battlefield, uh, many of them suffering horribly. As you know, it's a fairly small field. If, if that tetrahedron that was built after the, after the battle that you can climb up on the top mm -hmm. of now, you can virtually see all yeah. portions of the effective yeah. battlefield. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is rather striking uh, to think of it, 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 a great it, conclusive battle being uh, an enormous done number of men heavily armed in a very small space. And, and yeah. probably the worst coordinated of all of Napoleon's battles. There was a, a kind of system 
in fighting uh, during the Napoleonic Wars tactically, in which one would try to use your, your, your different arms, your infantry, your cavalry, your artillery, in such a way to minimize your own cavalry, your own casualties and maximize the enemies. And that just went out the window at, 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 at Waterloo. You, know, you, you attack with cavalry, why? Well, because that would force your enemy to form square. He can't shoot, and meanwhile you come up with your, your infantry in such a way that it's not being subjected to heavy fire. The cavalry draws off, and suddenly your infantry is right there on top of the enemy. Well, it didn't work that way. It wasn't coordinated well, well at all. Well, great genius, of course, is the reverse slope positions yeah. of the mm -hmm. squares, where, where when the cavalry crests, there they are. If you we know, go back to the uh, uh, failed siege of Syracuse, the entire uh, Athenian expedition was, was lost. There are only a handful of uh, survivors. I think it's very rare in modern war that you have casualties of that order. The, the old guard dies. I love the, um, the game of counterfactuals that <laughs> one, one can play. And with regard to battles, you could do that often. One of my favorite counterfactuals, which I've posed now and again when we've talked about this period in modern history, is what if Hitler had, uh, as a corporal in the German army in World War I, been shot down and killed? What would the difference have been for European history? No matter what kind of social forces view of history you take, you cannot imagine that, our, that modern history would have worked out the same way without Adolf Hitler on the There might very well have been another parvenu that would, would step in. Maybe so, but one... Maybe not. But it is hard to imagine. But uh, I, I don't mean to raise that one, but rather I mean to go to a particular date, 1066, Aha. the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. Uh, what if Harold, uh, the British king, hadn't taken that arrow in the eye and been killed at the Battle of Hastings? Is it conceivable that the Normans would have lost and would have been driven back? And what the, would the difference then have been for the history of England? For one thing, we would not be speaking the language we're speaking. Since the French invasion, the Norman invasion, uh, fertilized uh, the language that the uh, English were speaking and made it into something quite different than it had been before. Well, we'd certainly be eating pig and not pork. Uh, it, that was a near-run thing. That uh, was, and, too. And, and, and yeah. what people, you know, uh, don't remember is that, that Harold had just carried off something of a military miracle Up by north. marching to the north, mm -hmm. beating Harold Hardrada, then coming south with the army, um, had the timing been a little bit different, had he had just, you know, maybe a, a week or two more to, as it were, rest and reassemble a, his armed mm -hmm. forces, he might have won. I mean, that is one of the decisive battles in history because it really could have gone either way. And the consequences. And would you say that the great. killing of the king would, may, may have been the crucial event that lost the his battle? His army is already years. beginning to crack when he gets killed, at least if, the, if you can believe the, the Bayou Tapestry. Mm -hmm. Uh, but th there are other moments in that battle as well, which which could have gone another way. It's a, but, it's but really the personal figure one. of the king, the warrior. Oh yeah, king, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it does have a dramatic. Yeah, yeah. I would think when, so. when kings go down, well, in Greece, when when military leaders go down, it tends to crack an army. Yes, Darius, uh, the Persian emperor, uh, fled the battlefield at both uh, Issus and Gaugamela. Uh, and uh, this demoralized his army uh, when he. And did finally, that. as Alexander is coming after him, don't some other Persians kill Darius? Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, Alexander was in the heroic mold of leadership uh, or military command, which I think is one of the big differences between uh, the ancient generals and, and modern. Uh, and uh, he uh, led his men into. Uh, the battle at the crucial moment. He was wounded eight times uh, mm -hmm. in his short yeah. life. 
uh, four of them quite seriously and uh, one almost fatally. Uh, so uh, that was sort of a dead end. Uh, to to jump ahead, yeah. in, in the Second World War, we had a, a catastrophic effect at St. Lowe where Leslie J. McNair, who was the uh, general in charge of Army ground forces and, and was a, a great intellectual uh, mover and shaper of, of things uh, during the Second World War for the Americans, is, is killed in the carpet bombing. Uh, so uh, even, even though we're not talking about personal command in the form of the king, you still do have the loss of significant folks. You say killed in the carpet bar bombing. You mean yeah. by friendly fire? Oh yes, yeah. The Eighth and the Ninth Air Forces are are, are leveling St. Louis so yeah. that the uh, and they kill their own general. Well, uh, unfortunately, that that's what happened, and a lot of other soldiers sure. as well yeah. because of the technique used there. I read someplace only recently that uh, friendly fire in quotes is very often uh, the source can often account for as much as ten or fifteen percent of, of of the casualties. It, it's been there from from the from the the first, you know, uh, shots in time, uh, mistaking an enemy for a friend, mistaking right. an uh, a friend mm -hmm. for uniforms. You know, I just, it, um, yeah. Can, can I, I, I want to make a point here, I, and, and I don't know who our listeners are right now, but they're... They are, they are multitude. Multitude. <laughs> There's a tendency to argue, well, you know, this battle is fought and won and, or fought and lost, and what in the long string of things does it matter? If you look at Napoleon, he loses. So you could say, well, so what matters, you know, the wars of Napoleon? But because he was successful as long as he was, northern Italy is liberated. Uh, there is a, uh, a Republican government in Belgium and in the Holland for a long time. And what happens is even if people came to despise the French or wish for their own freedom, there were so many institutions and law codes and examples brought by Napoleon that the, the end product of Napoleonic military brilliance may have been a military defeat of France, but it is clearly the, the spreading of culture. It uh, even affects the views of Stanley Kowalski in The Streetcar Named Desire. He keeps <laughs> telling his wife, here in Louisiana we have something, exactly. it's the Napoleonic, Napoleonic Code. Napoleon, and, yeah. and Alexander's a wonderful example, too. I, I do a little Indian history, South mm -hmm. Asian history, and there's, there's whole artistic movements that are essentially Greek, and they're there of because course. in his victories he planted these little islands of Greek culture as he went along. And, and, and yet his campaign in uh, India was exceptionally bloody. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, I think unwisely, uses words like genocide and holocaust to mm -hmm. describe uh, Alexander's campaign uh, in India. How far does he get into India? He um, uh, just in the north gets. He gets into the Punjab. Yeah, uh, that's right. In in the north, his his furthest point is the the Jhelum River, uh, and his troops uh, refuse to go yeah, further. Yeah, he goes easy. into an immense pout uh, <laughs> over that. Uh, but uh, after sulking in his tent for several days, the troops still did not change their mind, and he had to turn around and and head back. You really wonder, in the case of the Alexandrian conquest, what exactly was the point? I mean, what were they after way down there in India? Well, yes, well perhaps, I think uh, they, they, uh, it has its own logic. Uh, Clausewitz understood this, you know, that sometimes the momentum and the and the, just the activity of being mm -hmm. uh, engaged in warfare has its own uh, logic, its own Feeds momentum. on itself. Yeah. Yeah. He had a, uh, a desire, is what the ancient writer said, that uh, yeah. this unquenchable 
uh, desire. He mm -hmm. wanted to reach the ocean, which in his geography was the end of the world, uh, really, mm -hmm. and he believed he was near, and that's why he wanted to push on, even though he was now beyond the Persian Empire. Seriously, that John Votor just mentioned von Clausewitz. Uh, Graf Karl von Clausewitz dies in about 1830-something, but his famous book on war is published mm -hmm. In 1848, I think. Mm -hmm. No, no, 31. It's published. Uh, it, it starts. Go ahead. Yeah, it starts to. His wife edited. It's a wonderful yeah, case of a woman to stepping in, and it starts it, to come out around 1832 yeah. to 37. But it's been republished so many times. In English, times. it hits in the 1870s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's had tremendous influence mm -hmm. upon military people since then. Mm -hmm. well, because it's a work of philosophy. Well, he aspires though to explain the nature of war, and also, among other things. Uh, it's a manual on how to win wars, isn't it? Well, it's been, uh, I think, mistakenly interpreted as a cookbook or a manual. Uh, he, never, he did not intend it to be that. It what was did he intend? A, a theoretical construct with uh, concrete examples. And it was very much an intellectual and a theoretical... Uh, uh, and what is his view of the ultimate nature of war and the ultimate nature of <laughs> a victory? Well, war yeah. at its essence, at its center, is violent. Uh, well, I think we knew to, that. To compel others to do your will. It's uh, uh, the, uh, it is politics by other means. That's uh, his great quotation. Right. War is the continuation of right. policy or politics yeah. by other means. Right. But because it is a work of philosophy, and on a very high level, right. and he, he, you know, we think of soldiers as not crossing that, that philosophical, but divide, here's a guy who knew Herder, <laughs> who was, you know, who, whose main source of conversation with his wife was Schiller and, and, and Goethe. Um, here's a guy who wrote very much in an intellectual milieu. I th there's a wonderful book by a man by the name of Azar Gott. Um, I think the finest book on Clausewitz out there. And he absolutely establishes the point that Clausewitz is part of the Romantic movement and that he sees things in a certain way. Who are the other great theorists of war? There's a Chinese one, I know. That's Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, misinterpreted, I think, because he uh, was a moralist as well as a general. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, uh, the the Buddhist faith, of course, uh, uh, takes great stock in many of the things that Sun Tzu had to say about warfare, albeit 2,600 years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, Jomini, uh, the Baron Jomini, who was uh, a contemporary with Napoleon, was quite influential in the, in the American uh, system. Uh, I told you while we were getting ready that uh, many generals were uh, told that uh, we went to the Civil War battlefields with a copy of Jomini in yeah. our pack. Mm -hmm. Halleck, in fact, uh, was a professor yeah. Yeah. of military theory and taught Jomini at, at, uh, in West Point. And, and in modern phone. times, who are the major theorists? Well, Douay, uh, I think, is, was a very influential on uh, theory of uh, air power yeah. and, and strategic uh, bombing. Alfred Theory Merhan is probably our our on only, power. Our yeah. only yeah. theorist. We're, we're, there, it, there aren't many in and the American And experience. someone who had a great reputation then seemed to lose it, but I think is on the way up again is, is, is Baza Littleheart. Little heart. Little heart. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was a captain in World War One. Right. British captain, severely wounded. He was a correspondent for the Times of right. London. Mm -hmm. wrote, wrote a number of pieces. I think the piece that most people write no, read now is his book on strategy. Yeah. John Keegan, who's been on this program a few times, is a very well-known modern military historian. I don't know that he's got a general over theoretical overview of war. Uh, no, but he certainly is a prolific writer about uh, the experiences mostly of the 19th and the 20th century. Yeah. Another one is John H. C.H. Uh, uh, Fuller, mm -hmm. uh, a general, but also a theorist of uh, of mechanized war. Yes, yeah, yeah.
Uh, Keegan uh, wrote a book called uh, Mask of Command, and that's, I think, particularly relevant to our uh, topic in which he mm -hmm. uh, tries to identify various types of uh, commanders, um, uh, he, the heroic leadership of yeah. Alexander the Great. Uh, he, he, he calls Wellington, I think, an anti-hero. <laughs> you know, apart from one or two mentions, I think John mentioned Gettysburg, one particular aspect of Gettysburg, uh, namely the the high losses for which the Minnesota Regiment. Yes. But we have not looked yet at the American Civil War, yeah. where there are some crucial battles, of course. We've got some, uh, we've got a few minutes in which we will take an update on the evening's news, and then we'll go to our own internal war, Good. right after we hear from Andrea Darlis. If you go back to the great attraction of the counterfactual proposition, um, McKinley Cantor once wrote a novel called, I believe, Bring the Jubilee, in which he gives us the alternative history that follows uh, when Pickett's charge works out the opposite of the way it did in Well, history. and also James Thurber wrote that interesting little short story. If Grant had been drinking at Appomattox. Indeed, indeed yeah, yeah. but that's merely funny. <laughs> Grant is so drunk that though he's won the war or won the battles, <laughs> he, he surrenders to Lee. Gives, uh, gives Lee yeah. a sword. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gets confused. But... Uh, what if the South had won at Gettysburg? Would that have made a crucial difference? Could uh, the South, by other means and with better luck and better command, have won the Civil War? Well, here we're in the right on the crux of the problem of uh, does a victorious battle a successful war make? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think the the, the long-term deficiencies of the Confederacy as a nation at war uh, probably uh, precluded uh, victory in the in the long run. The North simply was too strong, uh, with too many. Uh, friends waiting to to weigh in, some who had already weighed in, uh, but the resources, uh, the balance sheet of resources was just enormously uh, uh, disparate. And once Lincoln found Grant, uh, I, I think that uh, that was the beginning of the end. But at Gettysburg, um, had Lee been successful there, uh, I don't think he would have fought a battle of annihilation, though. You see, and I think that would that would have made the difference. He would he might have won the field, but I think he might have withdrawn. Uh, the, the, the notion being that uh, you, you create the Confederacy, you give legitimacy to the, to the Confederate state by not losing. And when your strategy is not to lose, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you're in a, in a weakened And position. then you might have got a concession from the North. You know, Lincoln might have been hard-pressed by those around him to concede and to settle well, for the separation. Yeah, there are problems, of course, in the Congress. There, there, there are those who are uh, sternly arguing against the war, but there are also Democrats mm -hmm. who are arguing for the war. Is he Lee's reputation declining? Well, it gets reevaluated from time to time. Uh, <laughs> there are those like Gary Gallagher and others who, and, and uh, Jim Robertson, who, who sustain Lee and Jackson, uh, not, not within the context of the lost cause, per se, but mm -hmm. Uh, they are substantial soldiers. There's you no mean question. Lee's reputation as a strategist, yes. as a field general? Yes. Generally, he's considered to have been a very brilliant general. Uh, Some think now that he did not appreciate the impact of uh, rifled fire, mm -hmm. that he um, was seeking the decisive battle in a technological context that precluded that, uh, that he... Uh, lost too many soldiers mm -hmm. uh, when he was already numerically inferior, mm -hmm. that if he had had a more defensive uh, strategy that well, uh, this might have served the South better. Uh, the, uh, he was, after all, the commander of a field army. Uh, yeah. He had been the military advisor to the president of the Confederacy. But I think the real defect is at the mm -hmm. core, at the center, and that's the relationship with Jefferson Davis 
to Robert E. Lee and jo Joe Johnston. I, I learned something so fascinating just a few uh, weeks ago when we did a program about Lincoln, on pre uh, literally on his birthday, on February 12th. Uh, do you know who it was? Speaking of yet another war, the Black Hawk War, yes. mm -hmm. fought in and around Illinois. Right. Uh, and Lincoln was, was a militia captain. A militia captain. Do you know who gave him his commission? Who commissioned him as an officer in that war? Davis? Jefferson yeah, Davis. As a Secretary, Secretary of War. He was Secretary of War. Yeah. You know, but literally uh, commissioned him. Right. Yeah. I, I, w I, I want to appeal to, to, to one of my cherished colleagues at the University of Illinois, Bob Johansson. And we once had a discussion on the decisive battle of the Civil War. And I, I was arguing there was no decisive battle. The South was bound to lose. And he said, no, the decisive battle of the Civil War was dot, 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 the Siege of Atlanta. Because he argues that after the victories of 1863, and you'd created this mood that, that the war would soon be over, and then all the North received were casualty lists from the campaigns up in northern Virginia, and then from the fight down to Atlanta that Sherman was conducting, that Lincoln needed one more victory to win the election of 1864. And the, the victory that put the copperheads to bed, so to speak, was finally taking Atlanta. That was the last gasp of the Confederacy. Had that held, then, <clears throat> it, then McClellan might have been able to pull off an upset that would have forced some kind of accommodation. That's still a stretch, but it's a very interesting one, that the key battle was, was this one that, that hardly anybody thinks about. I would ask uh, another kind of question. What was the battle won by the Confederacy, which if it had not been won, would have ended the war much sooner? What gave the Confederacy scope to pursue its ambitions? What victory did? First of one. <laughs> well, one could make that yeah. argument that because early in the war and convictions hadn't really set in and mm -hmm. hadn't solidified that, that we really want to do this, that uh, First Bull Run or First Manassas yeah. might very well have uh, uh, changed the course of things. Because those were decisive victories for the Well, not decisive in the sense that they were war-ending, but they were uh, morale-smashing. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're decisive like Frederick the Great's yeah. victories were. They simply kept it from going the other <coughs> way. They kept the war going. Uh, you know, when you think about it, if you look out west, the Confederacy almost never won. I mean, a few of the fights around, around Vicksburg that kind of right. held off Grant, but in general... Uh, they might have won at Shiloh if Albert yeah. Sidney Johnson hadn't been killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your mention of Frederick the Great brings to mind one of the great military quotations, which just come at random to my mind. I forget what battle it is, but his troops are having a hard time, and some of them are getting a little bit shell-shocked or withdrawing, and he shouts at them, Schweinhund, and was willen Sie immer zu leben? You, you dogs, what do you want, to live forever? <laughs> There's another one where, where, where a deserter is brought to, to him yeah. the night before a battle, and the guy says, but, but sire, we will lose. And he says, I tell you what, go back to your regiment. If we lose, we'll both desert tomorrow. <laughs> Great genius at work there with small, uh, uh, very disciplined armies. Yeah. Victor Davis Hanson seems to think that the decisive moment in the Civil War was... Uh, um, Sherman's march um, that was not a battle, and, and his point is that actually very few lives were lost and that Sherman had uh, more of a strategic grasp of the way to defeat the um, South than those who were seeking to but, well, destroy it was the war. It's famous for having destroyed but, everything in his path. Right? Yes, and uh, he thinks that this uh, destroyed the morale and broke the mystique of, but, of the 
Southern military elite. But returning to Clausewitz, uh, the connection between politics and, and military operations, one might argue for Antietam, uh, which uh, uh, the battle that uh, uh, Lincoln used to launch the Emancipation Proclamation, although he had written it earlier, uh, that provided the opportunity. It wasn't a great decisive battle, but it provided him with a sufficient edge uh, where he thought he could go ahead and issue that. Uh, we must pause once again for some commercials, uh, but let me pose a question before we do. Even before I pose the question, let me say that in a little while we'll be on to the phones, and so we're opening the lines right now. If you want to join to pose a question, offer a thought, even report on a battle that you fought in, as some of our older listeners might be able to do, or some of our younger ones, uh, going Vietnam. back at least to Vietnam and so on. Uh, the phone number, 591-7200. 591-7200 and 312 is the area code if you're calling long distance. And as we say these days, if you're at a very long distance and listening to us on the Internet rather than uh, via regular radio uh, and you want to be in touch, uh, you can do that by calling if you don't mind the expense, but you can also, of course, email us. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com, extension720 at tribune.com. If any of our Aussie friends who are listening now uh, in uh, Sydney or wherever, want to recall their memories from World War II, uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you via email. Extension World 7 World and World War I. <laughs> well, there aren't too many of those around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Extension 720 at tribune.com is how you email us. But the question I wanted to raise for you to think about for the next three minutes before we, when we come back from those commercials is simply this. In modern war, uh, do battles still get fought? Is the battle still... Uh, a way of describing the major event or the major series of events in a war. We return directly to John Votaw, to John Lynn, and Paul Kern after these words. And on that audio archive, which has just been mentioned, uh, there are a number of recent programs that we've made available for all the world to listen to from here to eternity. One of them is a recent conversation we had with President Jimmy Carter. Another is a conversation during her last week in office with uh, the former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. Other such conversations will be placed on the audio archive. There's lots of great stuff there, I think. And uh, if you've just discovered the program, go to the website, wgnradio.com, and then go to our location and uh, listen to the dozens of programs which you will find there, full programs, and for that matter, the clips and excerpts from programs dating way back to the 1970s. 591-7200 is the number, but if you're trying to reach us, you're not getting through. All the lines are taken, and we'll be to the calls. We'll get to the calls in just a moment. But the basic question I was raising, and Paul Kern, take a whack at it if you would. Do battles still happen? I have my doubts. Uh, if we def it depends, of course, how you define the battle, uh, but uh, in the classical sense of a a uh, battle where two armies meet, and within a relatively short uh, period of time uh, get a decision, and it seems to me that that's fairly rare today. Uh, there's been a tendency for battles to lengthen, uh, particularly after the introduction of gunpowder. Uh, before then, battles were so strenuous that they could only last for a few hours, maybe even only about an hour. Uh, but now, by World War One, battles were measured in months, uh, and I'm not sure you can really call such well, a, most uh, recently, an action a battle. Most recently, Desert Storm is probably an example of a battle 
that mm-hmm. uh, is almost the totality of the war. But it was the mother of all battles. Well, from according, one to, our, from according one to our opponent. Yeah. You still see some battles. I think the, the crossing of the Suez Canal in, in 1973 mm-hmm. was a, a battle uh, quite important in political terms. Done by Ariel Sharon, if I remember correctly. Is Ar- that right? Ariel Sharon was, was fighting against it. The, the guy who designed oh, it you mean is, is an Egyptian general by when, the name when of when Ismail the Ali, over. who I think is, is, a, is, a, is a great commander. Yeah. Can you but think but then any... Sharon crossed it back further south. With an awful lot of help from people like Bren Adan and others. But uh, the Egyptians yeah. hold back uh, because of uh, faulty, uh, false uh, disinformation. Was uh, that essentially a, uh, uh, a mechanized battle? Mm, uh, actually, it works best because it's, it's so heavily infantry oriented. Uh, the, the Egyptians do very well with infantry, less well with tanks. But, I mean, it, it, there is an absolute tendency for battles to extend into campaigns, and it's hard to be tell. You know, the, the great battles of World War I are really campaigns. Kursk is, 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 is more on the line of a battle. An extended battle. Yeah, an extended battle. Actually, it wasn't called the Battle of Kursk until long after per- the war, was it? Perkovok, uh, I, I can't pronounce yeah. it uh, properly. The sharp engagement among the, uh, the German and the Russian tanks uh, was a specific battle of, of finite duration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Enormous casualties at very close range. Yeah. So the, very, the change in the instrumentation of war has, in essence, uh, also this altered the possibility yeah. for having face-to-face confrontations which last for a day or two and are called battles. Uh, although victory and defeat is probably in the mind of the, uh, of the opposing commanders or, or opposing mm-hmm. uh, state uh, coalitions, if you will. It's also a question of, of the resources you mobilize. You, if you mobilize huge amounts of men with huge amounts of resources, battles can go on much longer. Right. Now, gentlemen, with that, let us go to the phones. Loads of people would like to get into the conversation. That doesn't surprise me at all because it's been so interesting, the conversation. And here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, for putting me on, and I'll tell you, it's an outstanding program as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I am a Civil War buff and extremely interested in the intelligence aspect. Uh, Very little I have found in my research uh, has been done in great depth on the value of intelligence, uh, other than you'll see the Greenhow Group uh, and the effect that that had. I would like to ask your experts a broad question, if they could. How big is the factor of intelligence information or the lack thereof? It can be very large because uh, even Alex- already by the time of Alexander the Great, uh, one of the keys of his success is he campaigned out into extremely remote areas uh, was the intelligence that he systematically really uh, uh, collected about uh, such things as terrain and um, other factors. So uh, even in ancient warfare, intelligence was important. Well, even back to Sun Tzu and his uh, evaluation of intelligence and what determines the great general. Mm-hmm. Is it the butcher's bill or the lack thereof, but still the victory? If If you look at early modern warfare, what strikes me there is that intelligence matters a great deal, but it's handled so much differently. Intelligence is sort of the personal asset of a particular general. They don't share it much, and it's part of their art of command. So they have their own agents and their, and, and their own sources, uh, but it's absolutely critical. If I could, I'd like to ask one more question, and particularly into the Civil War. I tend to agree 
with what you stated as it, it, it pertains to the various generals within the Civil War. But I've read several books by Tidwell, if you're familiar with uh, William Tidwell, uh, Contribution, as well as uh, April 1865, Lincoln's assassination. And he did a marvelous job, in my opinion, in documenting the existence of the Confederate intelligence operation and the vast network of operations that took place. Well, it's certainly true that there were uh, well-defined organizations on both sides. Uh, the most famous one, of course, being the Pinkerton organization that served the Union. One of my Army. heroes, because he's badly treated there's, by history. There's an excellent new book uh, called The Secret uh, uh, History of the Civil War by Correct. Hank Fischel right. uh, that gives you a great deal of detail about uh, about those things. But uh, by and large, it's human intelligence, uh, the uh, movement uh, and uh, uh, use of the information from agents. Also remember that in both armies you have soldiers who are familiar with the uh, the opponent's battle area, as uh, well as the, their friendship strategy and techniques, uh, is so close because they're trained basically at the same place. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you very, very much. A very fine beginning of the phone phase of the program, and we'll go directly on to another five nine one seventy two hundred. Good evening. Uh, yes, gentlemen, is it accurate or factual that I, I think I heard a stat that nine out of ten German soldiers in World War Two uh, were in fact killed by this, the Red Army. We were discussing that just before we went on the air. It's uh, essentially I, the, the case, isn't uh, it, John? It, it's certainly a, a preponderance on the on the Eastern Front, where most of the German divisions uh, are fighting. Of course, uh, the uh, uh, the Wehrmacht, the armed forces of, of Nazi Germany, have to redeploy uh, forces uh, from time to time, uh, notably in, the, in late 1944 and 45. Uh, but they're fighting all around the periphery. They've got a problem, uh, of course, in uh, uh, the Italian front. They're trying to keep uh, from collapsing uh, all along the front. But I think most of the casualties uh, are uh, uh, incurred on the Eastern Front. You have to remember that uh, the uh, Germans were engaged on a tremendously long front uh, from uh, June of 1941 uh, all the way to the end of the war in 1945. And... Uh, the Western fronts uh, open somewhat later. Doesn't the sheer volume of casualties lost by the Wehrmacht then, isn't, doesn't that skew our view of our contribution towards the defeat of well, Nazi Germany? There has been argument in that direction, but I was just going to say before you uh, extended your question uh, that, that I don't think that this undervalues the, uh, the effort of the Western allies uh, in crossing uh, the English Channel in force and uh, beginning to bring the uh, the campaign and carrying the war to the... But here's the fact, to play with counterfactuals again. Sir, thank you very much for opening a very interesting topic. Uh, Ian Kershaw was here on the program just a few months ago, the British historian yes. who's done this major political biography of Hitler. is the second volume right. appeared only recently. Um, and uh, Kershaw does play with counterfactuals also, inevitably, with regard to the decision taken by Hitler, much of it... Uh, against the views of many of the senior members of the German general staff to invade the Soviet Union. And one can ask, what if they had not gone to war with the Soviet Union? But but the whole point of, of the war was to go to war with the Soviet Union. I mean, it really... Uh, it, it, you, you, you'd better ask, why did they need to fight France? I mean, the, 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 the racial 
picture of the war sure. and his his picture of the way the world would look in in involved taking yeah. over but Slavic it, but isn't one isn't one good strategy thank god hitler d didn't uh, uh, keep the strategy in mind to finish off your enemies one at a time. That's true. He went, he, to tried, war, he went to war with France and England because they, in essence, declared war on him. They said, if you invade Poland, they'd given him an ultimatum, then we will now react. And so that's what started the Western War. You, one might also ask, why was it a, a piece of sheer stupidity or was it inevitable and forced that he, Hitler, declare war upon the United States? We were not, we were attacked by Japan and we declared war against Japan right after sure. Pearl Harbor, we did not declare war That's against right. Hitler. We I can, declared give, war I can give you uh, Ger Gerhard Weinberg's answer, because mm -hmm. I asked them the same question. He said it was really because Hitler's goals were quite indeed to conquer the world, and he wanted to co-opt the Japanese fleet. He could not have his pr program without a naval power, and the way mm -hmm. to get to solidify his relationship with Japan was to declare war in the United States. More broadly, it does raise the question, could... The Germans have won the war if they have played if they had played their hand differently. In fact, if Hitler hadn't been, in essence, designing the strategy and uh, deciding what where the battles would be fought, I, I think there is a tendency to uh, get caught up in this good cop bad cop uh, kind of kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of the high command, the generals were thoroughly uh, Nazified. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, they were, and, and supported uh, Hitler in most of his decisions. Uh, he made a bold gamble in 1936 when he went into the into the uh, into the Ruhr. Uh, into the Ruhr. Or, no, into the Rhineland. Rhineland. And yeah. remilitarized the Rhineland. The French had they interfered at that point, but they would have needed the support uh, at least of Britain to do that. But he, he he gambled and he won. I do not think that Germany could have won the war. I think that uh, uh, that Germany, uh, both in the First and Second World War, followed a policy of uh, tremendous irresponsibility and that uh, one of the great failures of uh, German leadership was the failure of the German military command to uh, come to grips with reality. Uh, and uh, both the Schlieffen Plan uh, and the strategy of Blitzkrieg were uh, really uh, strategies designed to mask weaknesses, fundamental weaknesses that um, caused a catastrophe, really, for Germany in the 20th century. I think what you really are all agreeing on is that the ultimate truth about war is war is won by the side with the greatest lasting force, with the, with the preponderance of power. Or mobilizable uh, uh, moral force. One that, exception that, to that uh, could be the Persian War, so that the, the Greeks won, but that was a peculiar situation. Uh, it was a war that was fought uh, at a... Uh, very remote for the Persians, very mm -hmm. remote frontier area, but uh, that and definitely was a war where the big battalions did not win. And it was war, uh, fought close to home, close to home by the Greeks. Correct. Of course, it was Correct. fought on their ground. You, you talk about will. One might make the case uh, in Vietnam uh, of political will at the very highest level, and disconnects between that and uh, the execution of an effective strategy on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, I remember as a young company commander, uh, uh, cavalry commander in Vietnam in 1966 and 67, uh, it was clear in my mind, I think I understood what, why we were there, uh, to, uh, to allow the South Vietnamese to at least have a chance to make a nation. Um, but I'm not sure all soldiers, uh, had been convinced, uh, of the, both the rightness of our, of our cause and the, the soundness of our, 
of our approach. Nor had the American population back home. Yeah, which is another, uh, another... And that, that's thing. an asset in war as Indeed, well, absolutely. a supporting... Uh, public opinion. Public opinion. 591-7200, the number. We'll go back to the phones in just a moment, but uh, we've got loads of email here as well, so um, let me um, read you some of it. Here's one, interestingly, I was struggling with a song from the Napoleonic period, or after the Napoleonic period, and this caller says, your brief mention of the two grenadiers, you were trying to remember the lines from a poem. The original was in German by Heinrich Heine, uh, dates 1797 to 1856, um, uh, maybe the greatest German romantic poet, he says, I think he's probably right, and a total admirer in his early days of Napoleon, who we thought would cure Germany of all its ills and unite it. He wrote the lines, Mein Kaiser, Mein Kaiser verloren, in his, that is, uh, my, uh, uh, my, what's translated in English as uh, my emperor, um, in his poem, Die Zwei Grenadieren. Uh, those lines often are repeated in the poem. Sorry, I can't find it at the moment, and so on. So we have that. Uh, it goes back to the Napoleonic retreat from Russia. Um, on to another, um, and um, takes me a moment to bring it up, uh, but um, here we are. Uh, during World War II, a Nazi submarine torpedoed an Allied hospital ship anchored off the coast of Italy. The Germans thought the ship was carrying canisters of mustard gas in its hold, and for once the Nazis were telling the truth. Though many men in the trenches were killed by mustard gas during World War I, there wasn't much experience in trying to treat those who were poisoned. However, by the time the gas from the hospital ship wafted inland, the wind had dispersed it enough so that people weren't dying from the gas, but were becoming sick enough to go to the clinic. Blood tests revealed that the gas was severely suppressing their white cell counts, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what happens with leukemia, a disease in which white cell counts explode. Though they weren't enormously effective, the first chemo treatments for leukemia used a drug that was a chemical derivative of the active ingredient in the poison gas. Who would think that any good could come from something as hideous as gas warfare? I don't know the details, but uh, I have heard the mustard gas uh, uh, analogy before. It's the serendipitous yeah. uh, benefits of evil war. Well, the fact of the matter is a lot of uh, uh, advances in modern medicine going back uh, certainly to the 16th century came out of military medicine. For one thing, a lot of the stupidity that went along with medicine in the early modern era, bleeding people, mm -hmm. etc., was not a not a factor out out in the front. And people actually care, you know, cared for wounds and mm -hmm. learned uh, the the operation of the body. The Parade brothers yeah. for, in yeah. France. Uh, here's Tetanus, one of course, is big killer in wartime. Here's um, speaking of who's killed in wartime. Here's a, a direct question from a listener. I've heard that since World War Two, since World War Two. 90% of the casualties for modern war are civilians. I, I, he's asking implicitly, is that the case? I would not know uh, whether it is or not. That's uh, a pretty certainly, high number. That, that sounds high, yeah. but um, certainly it's a characteristic of modern war that um, civilians do um, become in, in, engulfed in it. One of the themes of my book uh, is that uh, in ancient siege warfare, civilians were very much involved and uh, took very heavy casualties, and uh, in that sense, siege warfare was a kind of total war, somewhat similar to modern total war. Of course, if you are to um, take his data seriously, as I do, Rudolf Rommel may have had the decisive word on this in his book, Death by Government, which is the fifth or so of his many volumes. He's a 
political scientist who works with demographic data about war, uh, he uh, estimates that the number of non-military killed by states uh, during wars and beyond wars, but as a matter of state policy in the 20th century, runs upwards over 180 million people. And certainly with World War II, one has to remember. We have the number 60 million at, at least. I think Gerhard Weinberg uh, uh, probably gave us the best summary of all of that. Perhaps uh, mm -hmm. 20 million military casualties and, and uh, upwards of 50 or 60 million. In World War II. In World War II. World II. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, though, that uh, combat in urban areas, of course, raises the possibility of uh, larger uh, civilian casualties, and it uh, increasingly yeah. has become an aspect of modern war. But, but it, it's also an, a, a, a product of, of, of weaponry. I mean, uh, in World War II, what you could do with a bombing offensive w had very little to do with precision bombing in effect, and, and, and uh, both the Americans and the British eventually simply did area bombing. It's a, actually an oxymoron. Uh, I mean, even, even with the bomb sites and the, and the technical capabilities, these iron bombs were not uh, uh, precision-guided munitions like we mm -hmm. have today, and even those don't hit, as we yeah. saw uh, uh, most recently. And and what you see is is a moral decision that, given you have that this uh, these are the tools of war, you adjust the morality of attacking a civilian. Uh, population to the technology you have available to undermine a do, war effort. Do I remember correctly that the general who most embarrassed the British was the one they called Bomber Harris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Harris. He, he received uh, no decorations or bonuses after the war. He was the man who ran the uh, the uh, city bombing operation for he, the British. He, he was the head of Bomber Command yes, in, the, yeah, Bomber in Command. the British uh, Army. And he, it was his philosophy that sort of prevailed. Uh, Wallop the civilian. It was his recognition that, uh, in terms of carrying the war to the enemy, that uh, that that's what they were going to have to do. Under the laws of war, uh, it is uh, legal to bombard a fortified position. The justification of World War II for bombing uh, German cities was that their anti-aircraft fire represented a fortification. That and also the railroad nets and so forth that, that uh, did have a military function. And with that, gentlemen, let us go back to the phones. 591-7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Yeah, I went to a symposium recently of historians who are not military historians, and they didn't seem to think much of the generalship of George Washington. Now, all of the military writers I've read seem to think he's one of the truly great generals we've produced. Hmm. Why does he lack the reputation for that among, shall we say, civilians? Because historians are dumb. Um, because an awful lot of historians don't care about actually analyzing what goes on in a military campaign. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, that Washington brilliantly recognized the, the situation that the Americans fought. And after, I mean, there's a, there's a learning curve there because the, the campaigns around New, New York are costly and not successful. But then he recognizes that the Americans can win the war by not losing the army uh, and that the, it, the, if, if, he, if he stays out of reach he can confine uh, the area that, that the British control and as long as he keeps an army in being he, he, the, the British might hold one city or two cities but they'll never dom do dominate the northern colonies. Does We're, he have any victory at all before Trenton? Before Trenton? 
Well, I mean, it, it, remember, he's, he takes command with the siege of Boston, and yeah. that's a huge victory. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where he gets the idea that if you put Americans into, into defensive positions. In, in my idea, yeah. George Washington is, is, is uh, worthy of the, uh, the title Great General, uh, if for no other reason that he understood what Clausewitz later expressed, that the moral is to the physical in war uh, as two is to one. And Washington understood that the moral fiber of the army was perhaps the most important thing that he had to tend to, and he did that pretty well. Do you think we have with him something like what we had with Alexander and, uh, and Napoleon, that is a certain charismatic force which helped uh, with, to preserve no, the army? No, no, uh, with what, no. Monarchical versus Republican fervor. I, I, I really think there is a fundamental difference there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, what, what we, we forget is what Washington, had he been a lesser man, might have become, because he was almost offered a military coup against the government, he turns it down. I mean, he really is our greatest president in the sense of he creates the presidency and he almost creates the United States by not doing it in. He's more in the tradition of Cincinnatus than yes. Alexander. Yes, yeah. absolutely. If I could make a final point, uh, yes, sir. the brilliant Vietnamese general, uh, I'm never sure how to say this, Giap, is that how you say it? Giap. Giap, Giap said that uh, his victory at Dien Bien Phu was modeled exactly on Yorktown. I they don't know that. I've interviewed General Jap. Uh, really? Well, yes, I read something where yeah. he said that isolating um, the, the one of the large armies of the French, he envisioned the air power as the British sea power. Well, he was a historian. He was a history teacher before he was a general. And, of course, being a, uh, a close colleague of, of Ho Chi Minh, he was in at the its inception, if you will, of the Vietnamese Revolution. Um, and he was a good general. Uh, but I, I, I had not heard that, but I, I would not doubt it. I don't re re believe everything Jop says, though. <laughs> you know, his whole analysis of the Tet Offensive is very much an after-the-fact analysis. Well, I have some interesting stories, but we won't further <laughs> well, with those. So. Let's thank the caller and give us at least one general Jop story. Um, uh, when he uh, entered the room, I had given him a list of written questions. The first one was, uh, General, why did you take your army south to fight against your countrymen? And he says, well, that obviously is not the question. The question is... Why did the Americans bring their army here to fight against Vietnam? Vietnam is one country. Vietnam has always been one country. When the rivers run dry, Vietnam will still be one country. Mm -hmm. It's prosaic. It's wonderful. But it's not right. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the fashioning of, of a strategy and a philosophy to fit your particular ideology, he was a master at that. Mm. Do you agree with the classic quotation uh, from, uh, what was his name? Vegetius, Flavius Vegetius Renatus in the 4th century AD. Uh, Desiderat pacem preparat bellum. If you desire peace, prepare for war. Has war kept peace or the preparation of war? You can go either way. You could argue that World War I is from people preparing too much for war and seeing uh, war as a military solution. You could argue that World War II is the product of lack of preparation for war. It, it's, it's a case-by-case -case scenario. I don't think there's a clear uh, uh, formula in, in that regard. Because the question keeps arising. As a matter of fact, uh, we just had a cancellation uh, necessarily of the program we're planning for Monday uh, with a fellow who's an expert on the Chinese preparation for war. Mm -hmm. hmm. So instead, we've taken advantage of that to put together a discussion that I think will take the form of a debate of the, um, uh, the new... Uh, SDI plan, which is now called M, what is it, um, Military 
uh, NMD, National Missile Defense. Right, right. Uh, which still is, Star Wars. Still Star Wars. <laughs> well, it's a version of Star Wars. It's very high on the Bush agenda, as you know. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, two people coming, uh, namely David Courtright of the Fourth Freedom Organization, former um, executive director of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, and Dick Friedman of the National Strategy Forum to debate uh, the virtues of the NMD operation, which uh, is... Well, it does extend the notion of preparedness. You know that Theodore Roosevelt and Leonard Wood were actively trying to persuade uh, President Wilson that uh, being being ready, being prepared, was uh, yeah. a fundamental aspect of, of, of state uh, uh, national security. And the NMD rationale, as given by President Bush, is that this will dissuade others from attempting to assault us if they know that we've got this ability to knock down their assault and further retaliate in the old... Um, well, whatever mutual... happened to the old argument about destabilization? You know, I, I'm, I, it, That's my concern. Con it's confusing. I'm very concerned about that, and uh, I've said as much uh, that I think uh, this commitment to NMD is probably a bad idea. But I will try to remain neutral as we debate, as our <laughs> two participants debated on Monday. Uh, it's time for us to pause for a last quick round of messages and then directly back to the phones on 591-7200. And if you are listening on the Internet and want to get to us via email, the email address extension720 at tribune.com. With a quick reintroduction of our guests who have uh, given us a wonderful discussion so far and will for the next 15 minutes as well, Colonel John Votaw is the executive director of the Cantini First Division Foundation and thus of the First Division Museum at the Cantini um, uh, location in Wheaton, Illinois. He's also adjunct professor of history at Dominican University. John Lynn is professor of history at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. His newest book is The Wars of Louis XIV, 1667 to 1714. Paul Kern is professor of history at Indiana University Northwest and is the author of the recently published book back in 1999, I guess, Ancient Siege Warfare. And we go directly back to the phones. There is one line available at this moment, 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Uh, yes. For those of us who still remember Alfred Lord Tennyson's great poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, we somehow uh, sometimes forget that the actual eyewitness account first written by William Howard Russell is actually better than the poem. And I happen to have it here in front of me. It's not very long. How long is it? About 18 sentences. Go ahead. 18 sentences? Yeah. Give us the heart of it. Okay. At 10 minutes past 11, our light cavalry brigade advanced. They swept proudly past, glittering in the morning sun and in all the pride and splendor of war. At the distance of 1,200 yards, the whole line of the enemy belched forth. From 30 iron mouths, a flood of smoke and flame. The flight was marked by instant gaps in our ranks by dead men and horses, by steeds flying, wounded or riderless across the plain, in diminished ranks with a halo of steel above their heads, and with a cheer which was made many a noble fellow's death cry, they flew into the smoke of the batteries. The into the valley of death marched the road, the 600, were they? 600 or were they 500? 600. 600. Yeah. What I remember so well is the comment by a French observer, yes. a military observer who was there at the time, uh, who was just astonished. He said, je ne comprends pas. C'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. He's the commander of the Chasseurs d'Afrique. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I do not understand. It's, it's magnificent. magnificent, but not war. But it's not war. Yeah. It was a pure suicidal... Uh, it was a headlong charge, uh, headlong charge into the teeth of yeah. artillery. Yeah. The, uh, you know, Tennyson also wrote a, a poem that I like very much called The Charge of the Heavy Brigade. Uh -huh. uh, it's a comparable piece, but uh, equally informative. 
The heavy brigade won. Yes. As I suppose they usually do compared to light brigade. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to the caller uh, for an interesting moment in military history. But, we, but what war was... Right, we know what war was, the Crimean War. Yeah. What, what larger battle, if any, was that a part of? Well, it was part of the attempt to take Sebastopol. Uh, the the British as part of the siege of Sebastopol. Yeah, the siege of Sebastopol. I mean, it's 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 a classic example of we're all dressed up and there's no war to go to because essentially the the Turks had done a fairly good job driving the Russians away and and the British and the French were there and they had to find some place to fight so they went to the Crimea. On to another caller and here that caller is. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Wonderful yes, show. Um, read a book called Gates of Fire last summer, which is a, uh, a fictionalization of the Battle of Thermopylae, which, as I read it, was a charismatic leader who was who knew he was doomed when he left for the battle, defending a philosophical and political uh, alliance that, it, that he did not agree with, uh, essentially. Where do you place that battle in the hierarchy uh, of Western culture? Paul Kern is our expert on ancient warfare. Well, that's a famous moment, of course, when the uh, Spartan hoplites uh, fought to the death. It was somewhat ironic because the Spartans really didn't want to be up there at Thermopylae. Uh, their strategy was to defend the Peloponnese, uh, and um, they were reluctantly there. But the defeat uh, opened up the uh, uh, Attica to the uh, Persians, and they burned um, um, Athens. Uh, and it was then that the Athenians took to their ships and won the Battle of, of Salamis. So... Uh, Thermopylae was a military defeat by the side that ultimately won the war, and therefore it can't really be called a decisive battle, but it's a, uh, a very famous moment uh, in Western history uh, and the uh, sort of epitome of Spartan bravery uh, and the tradition of fighting to the death. Spartan mothers used to say to their uh, sons when they left for war, uh, uh, Either bring your shield back, come back with your shield, or come back on it. Thank you, gentlemen. What's that great inscription on the monument that, uh, that the Lacedaemonians raised at Thermopylae? I cannot uh, come up with that. You know, a stranger tell your land that 300 Spartans here died according to their laws. Right. Something yeah. like that, yes. You know, we haven't uh, gotten at the notion of uh, uh, managerial versus uh, heroic uh, leadership style. In the American experience, particularly in World War II, we have the likes of George Marshall and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, mm -hmm. who had very, very limited uh, lead-from-the-front uh, kind of experiences, but were uh, absolutely essential. To, uh, to victory in World War II. As compared to our generals at the front. Such as Patton. Such as Patton. Who were some of the others who were in there? Oh, we had, running a, the risk. We had a wonderful armored leader by the name of Ernie Harmon. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite, uh, uh, of course, Terry Allen of the 1st Division, and later, <laughs> Cla later Clarence Hubner commanding that same division. But Tiger Jack. Yeah, Tiger, Tiger Jack. Jack Wood. Yeah. W was Bradley uh, a life-risking front uh, uh, Bradley, of course, was in the front line, um, uh, certainly in North Africa and Sicily, but mm -hmm. uh, Bradley's a different case, a very controversial no. case. Yes, yeah. He's come in for some fire recently in, in, in some ratings. An interesting figure from the early part of the war is Mark Clark yes. on the invasion of North Africa. Yeah, that's true, because Mark Clark was part of the diplomatic efforts to uh, deal with the Vichy French mm -hmm. in, uh, uh, in Algiers and then later becomes the commander of the Fifth Army in, in Italy.
And still later, the commander of the Citadel, as yes. I remember. Uh, yeah. Indeed, yes, one yeah. of the great heroes, along with Charles Summerall, uh, who commanded the 1st Division in World War I. Mm-hmm. Back to the phones, the number 5917200, and here is the next caller. Hello. Hi. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question about the armaments in the Civil War. A lot of times in movies, the, uh, the uh, cannons fire what appear to be exploding shells. I know they had artillery, but did they actually have, in the Civil War, exploding shell technology? Yes, they did. Yeah. The, 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 the Union artillery, which is superior from the, the beginning to the end, uh, transitions to rifled and exploding uh, shells. So these, are fact, these are shrapnel shells. Yeah, they? yeah. They, they, uh, they, they use some of the same cannons that they'd use to fire round shot. By, the, by 63, they're, they're actually uh, welding a, a rifled uh, tube inside, and then they're, they're using an exploding shell with a, and it's got a lead uh, base on it the, that grabs the, the rifling. The trick is the fuse, of course, you yeah. know, you, so that you can get the shell to go off where you want it to go off as opposed to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the fuses are quite primitive, and they're usually me- uh, mechanical. In other words, a, a burning element set off by the powder train when the when the shell is. Do, do you know these studies? I know that they're controversial. Done by some kind of military historical specialist, examining the number of unspent bullets on the ground, suggesting that most Civil War uh, soldiers at the front never fired at the enemy. Well, this is uh, you know sort of smacks of SLA Marshall yes. studies. In, uh, is, it, is it Marshall uh, who does uh, that? Yeah, one? Marshall does that uh, uh, for World War II. For World War II. Uh, and, and the notion is, is that a lot of soldiers don't fire their weapons. Uh, we don't know with great precision what that is, but I know that is always one of the objectives of training, is to make sure that the soldier feels confident enough with his weapon that when presented with the, the terror of being in combat, that they will remember to, to fire his weapon. One remembers that great quote from Patton, which is used at the beginning of the great film. Uh, your job is to kill the bastard who's trying to kill you. Yeah, your, your job is not to die for your country. Uh, it's to poor, make, yeah, the make sure that the other poor dumb bastard dies for his. Yeah. <laughs> is, that the way is that the way he says it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but lots of soldiers apparently don't shoot at all? Yeah, um, SLA Marshall figured that only about a quarter of American infantry in World War II fired their weapons, even in conditions where the unit was being overrun. D- do you find that persuasive, his evidence? I have no way to... Qu- I don't know whether you can generalize that yeah. completely about that. Uh, some units, obviously, uh, are better than others in that regard, more highly... One of the, but w- one of the great yeah. problems was that uh, before the introduction of, of um, rifled fire, drill was the way in which discipline was maintained, and uh, soldiers were uh, persuaded to uh, advance in the face of fire and um, rifled... Um, rifles made that Im- impossible, and so you could no longer go forward in a drill formation. Well, on what sort of evidence does SLA Marshall come to that? Interviews. 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 Rather than spent yeah. shells and unspent yeah. shells. But, you know, remember that, that even after the introduction of firearms, there are many attacks in which men are ordered not to load their weapons or to advance with the weapons on the shoulder because stopping to fire stops the momentum of the attack and mm-hmm. you take a lot of casualties. And so you want to close before you start to fire. Yeah. And in fact, what is it, Stony Point? The, uh, the, the um, um, American troops uh, attacking the British were not even allowed to load their flintlocks. In World War One, of course, this is called musketry. In other words, mm-hmm. the process of moving forward under fire and at the right point, always under command, uh, when to fire. Yeah. Here's an interesting question by a caller. Um, 
Uh, so, when is a simple book coming out that explains the principles of military strategy so that great battles can be analyzed by the armchair general? He, had, he had, heads this strategy for dummies. Uh, <laughs> there is such a book, I think. What is it? <laughs> a strategy for dummies. It's literally titled? <laughs> I, I'll tell you a really, really fine book, and it's, it was put out by the Marine Corps when Gray was the commandant, uh, and there's no title for there's no author on the on 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 the front cover, but the author is John Schmidt, Major John Schmidt. It's called War Fighting. It's it's short and it it combines uh, in very intelligently Clausewitz with Sun Tzu in such a way mm -hmm. that it without dumbing it down, it's very accessible. Well, As I say, it's War Fighting and it's a Marine the, Corps publication. The new edition of Makers of Modern Strategy, published by Princeton Press and edited by Peter Perret and Michael Howard and others. Uh, bring the essence of uh, strategic thought uh, together in one volume. Another one is the book Strat uh, Making of Strategy with, with, with Murray. Right. Yeah. What is there about, uh, we only have a minute or so left, but what is there about uh, the human animal that makes war in some sense attractive? Because there's no doubt that you couldn't get men to fight wars unless they were partly beguiled by the excitement. Listen to this from uh, Shakespeare's Coriolanus. Let me have war, say I. It exceeds peace as far as day does night. It's sprightly, waking, audible, and full of vent. Peace is a very apoplexy, lethargy, mold, deaf, sleepy, insensible, a getter of more bastard children than war is a destroyer of men. That's a tough one. Uh, danger, of course, is, uh, is Circe's song uh, to a lot of folks. Um, I don't know whether it's um, uh, deeper than that. I, I, I do not agree that there's some internal thing in most people that makes them want to fight. Um, I think some people get off on danger in the sense that they get off on trying to sail around the world in, in a single boat or climb a mountain. Uh, that you do people, you know, uh, some soldiers talk about, you know, a battle being a time which was in which the sky was the bluest and the grass was the greenest, and then mm -hmm. most people think it was the worst experience they went through. God forgive Homer, me, but I love it so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Homer speaks yeah. of the joy of combat, uh, but he also uh, brings out the tragedy of, uh, of it all, and that paradox has never been resolved. Gentlemen, we are out of time. I thank you for a most interesting evening. And uh, I'm amazed and uh, quite impressed by your encyclopedic knowledge of these matters. My guests have been Colonel John Votaw, the executive director of the Cantini First Division Foundation, John Lynn, professor of history at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, whose newest book is Wars of Louis XIV, 1667-1714, uh, and Paul Kern, professor of history at Indiana University Northwest, whose newest book is Ancient Siege Warfare. And with that, we come to the end of tonight's program, though, as I said earlier, we continue in a way in a comparable mode as we examine some new um, uh, innovative possibilities with regard to national arms policy uh, that on Monday night. Until then, a cordial good night to all.